Good morning. Uh, we're going to go ahead and begin our uh, lesson time this morning. And today we'll be looking at um, the relationship between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. We'll be looking at it through the, um, the story of Paul's journey to Rome. Uh, we'll begin with uh, the warnings he got, his arrest uh, in Jerusalem, and then journey to Rome and then his time in Rome. And, and we'll be looking at um, just how he uh, reacted to his circumstances and uh, dr- drawn from that then hopefully how uh, we can apply it to ourselves, how we are to react to our, our circumstances, to what God is doing in our life. And so uh, we'll be trying to answer that question today. What is the relationship between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? Before we get into it, though, let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, you are a great and holy God, and you're the one who is over all things, and it's before you that we live our lives and do things, but it's also underneath your your work, the, the hands that you uh, perform things with and you get things done. We know that uh, what we have control of is so little that you're the one who really controls events. And, and Lord, may we continue to learn to submit to what you're doing and, and still be faithful to what you have called us to do. Lord, help us to learn from what, this example in Paul's life. In Jesus' name, amen. Our uh, theme verse for this time period is uh, 1 Corinthians 1.18, uh, where Paul said, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul wrote that verse to the church in Corinth, uh, the church or the city of Corinth, as were pretty much uh, all the nations around heavily influenced by uh, the Greek philosophers from the centuries past. And Paul is addressing uh, a Greek idea. And a, this Greek idea is one that, that uh, came across, really probably began with Plato, a Platonic idea that um, the head... Of, of an organism is the most important thing and must be saved at all cost because once you take off the head the organism dies they, that's something that was learned from nature but that was something that was applied then to social structures to families to communities and even to nations that the head is the most important uh, part of the organism And so Plato's argument was that in a community, a family, or even uh, back then city-state, the head had to be protected. So if it's the king, whoever it is, it's the head, must be protected at all costs in order to save the, the rest of the organism. And so the sacrifices must be made to save the head. But when Jesus came... He turned that upside down. And he talked about that. 
Jesus, remember, made reference to leadership. And he, he referred to how, how the Greeks do it. And he says, but you are not to do it that way. If you want to be great, you must be a servant of all. And then what Jesus did was, uh, as the head, sacrificed himself for the body. Completely opposite. And so the message of the cross, going to a uh, philosophically different culture, they saw it as foolishness. The cross is crazy. What leader sacrifices himself? That's what Jesus did and, and showed the, the more God-oriented style of leadership that was to come. But the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those, to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. God always does things His way, and He doesn't bend to man's philosophy because man's philosophy doesn't see straight. We don't see straight. We can come up with our own ideas but God is the one who sets things upright. And, and so uh, this is a, a great verse for us as we continue on in our study of living as Christians. How is it that we are to live? And, and we're looking through uh, so far in, in the book of Acts in the last few weeks, looking at uh, the ministry of Paul. And, and as he's going out in his ministry doing his work, laboring, sacrificing. We've, we've seen how he has uh, struggled in, in, with different kinds of uh, persecution, uh, uh, different kinds of resistance, and yet the power of God has been going through and using him, and people have been saved. People have been changed in their lives. And uh, so giving us that example in the Acts of the Apostles, we're seeing how it is that we're to live as Christians and uh, learning from these examples today as i said before we're looking at the journey to rome and so we'll be uh seeing uh the obstacles that paul faced uh as he was uh made his way to rome last or two weeks ago it was last week was easter so we didn't have class but two weeks ago uh pastor mike uh took us through the third missionary journey and uh if you remember uh, briefly, he, the, the journey started in Antioch, went through Tarsus, back through the Galatian churches of Derby, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. And so Paul revisited those churches. This time, though, he went to Ephesus. On the second missionary journey, God didn't let them go to Asia. Remember, they, had, they ended up going to Philippi, and that's where God had them go. This time, Asia was an open door. And so um, as as Pastor Mike talk, uh, taught us two weeks ago, Ephesus is where the bulk of his time was spent, actually three years, pretty close to three years, spent in Ephesus and uh, in starting this church and, and, and building the saints and, and, and uh, getting them uh, started in, into becoming the great church that they did become, a very influential, impactful church in that area. From Ephesus, uh, they went up and ended up, he revisited the churches of uh, Macedonia up there in the Philippi and, and Thessalonica, Berea. Went back down to Corinth and spent time in Corinth. And uh, it's in 
Corinth that he writes the epistle to the Romans. And so this is a significant thing. Romans uh, is one of the most, uh, one of the epistles, probably the most uh, commented, I, I should trying to say it the right way, more commentaries probably written about Romans than any other epistle. Uh, it's, it's one of the dominating epistles because of the ground it covers uh, in regards to our salvation and, and how our salvation is impacted in our lives. And so uh, he writes this, this letter to, to Rome and to those Christians that are in Rome. And then he retraced his steps back through Macedonia, and he's taking a collection for the saints uh, as he um, has already uh, taken some from Corinth, and he's working his way back up through Philippi to collect this, this money to take to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is undergoing severe persecution by this time. Things are really tough there, and Paul sees an opportunity for the um, Gentile Christians to do something for the Jewish Christians. And uh, Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians. Uh, you can read about it there. His, his idea <coughs> is to build a bridge between the Gentile and Jewish believers uh, within the body of Christ. And one of the ways of doing that is by giving. And so he uh, gives, he's taking up this collection. He wants to take it to Jerusalem. On his way back to Jerusalem, they stop in Miletus, and uh, he uh, sends um, notice to the elders of the church of Ephesus. They come down, they visit and, and uh, with him, and Paul says his goodbyes to them and uh, tells them that probably not ever going to see them again. Paul doesn't expect to ever be coming back through this region anymore and so uh he says his goodbyes to them and have a very cheerful farewell and then he makes his way back to jerusalem and that's where we're going to pick up our lesson for today and we find uh that on his way back to jerusalem he makes a couple of stops along the coast of the mediterranean there right before he gets to jerusalem and uh, gets a warning. So if you turn to Acts chapter 21. We'll take a look at the first of the warnings that he gets. Chapter 21 verse 4. He says, after looking at the disciples, we stayed there seven days. And they kept telling Paul through the spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we left and started on our journey, while they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city. After kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home again. So Paul gets this warning that if you go to Jerusalem, you're not going to be well received. You're going to be arrested. There's going to be problems and we'd really like you not to go. But Paul was pretty insistent on it. The next stop was Caesarea. And Caesarea is basically is the primary um, seaport for Jerusalem. And uh, so if you're either coming or going uh, out of Jerusalem, it's sort of like the LAX. <laughs> you know, it's this, 
That's the main place to go if you're leaving on a journey. So Caesarea is where they land. And so looking in verse, um, verse 8, we'll pick it up in verse 8. On the next day, we left and came to Caesarea. And, we, and entering the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, they took Paul's belt, or he took Paul's belt, and bound his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we had heard this, we, as well as the local residents, began begging him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem. For the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking the will of the Lord be done. So Paul has received these warnings. And these warnings, it says expressly, are, are provoked by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, is uh, provoking these warnings. What is God doing? Uh, Paul is is going and and so there have been there are commentators who will say that Paul uh, in continuing to go to Jerusalem uh, was going against God's will because these these warnings were were expressly uh, given uh, from the Holy Spirit. Um, And why would Paul disregard the warnings? Well, he's actually not disregarding them, but he does go, he continues anyway, uh, in spite of the warnings. Uh, Paul is a man on a mission, but the mission really is of God. And as we will see, um, God continues to direct him and actually uh, appears to him a couple of times, affirming the mission that he's on, affirming this journey. So God, in his sovereign hand, is still directing Paul to go to Jerusalem. And so this is an important uh, thing for us to to grasp that in in Paul's case, God is preparing him with these warnings for what is about to happen. It's not that God is trying to keep him from going necessarily, but God is warning him, this is what's happening. And uh, so that is a real thing. for him why disregard the warnings well there are a couple of things that i would like us to think about in this whole issue of paul's motivation in going to jerusalem i've already alluded to one but uh, the first one is um, his love for his people for the people of jesus and you see this play out in his life in different uh, parts of his testimony like when he goes to um a new towns new uh cities to evangelize the first place he goes is where the synagogue right he has this love this deep love and if you remember uh, s- uh several weeks ago now uh pastor mike in his lesson brought up romans chapter 9 and if you just turn there real quickly i think this is an important uh, uh point to revisit for today uh paul's stating his feelings for his nation 
for the people of Israel. He says in chapter 9, we start in verse 1, he says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing, unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all? God blessed forever. Amen. Paul wrote this maybe a year, uh, maybe a little bit more before he actually comes to this point. This is still his attitude that he has this great burden for his own people and he will sacrifice himself. He says, I would even go to the point of being accursed myself, but he would certainly give his life for the gospel to break through into the hardness of their hearts. That's what he wants to see. That's how deep his passion is for his people, for his own people. And so he's really willing to to give it all um, for them. And then there's also the point he's bringing the offering to Jerusalem. And he's hoping that by doing so, he can build this bridge between the Gentile believers and and the Jewish believers, because they're now all one household, as he describes it in, a, in one of his writings. And so uh, he's, he's really wanting this to happen. He's wanting to see this coming together. So he's willing to go. He's willing to sacrifice himself, whatever God wants to do to make this happen. And, and we see this in his testimonies as well. When uh, he is arrested and uh, he's being taken up by the uh the roman soldiers and he gets to the top of the stairs and he asks to stop he says let me talk to them to these people down here that have been trying to kill me (laughs) this mob of jewish people they're trying to kill me down here let me talk to them so they get permission he raises his hands gets them quiet and he gives his testimony in the most earnest way trying to persuade them of of what he sees in the christ and and how that Christ is the one who has fulfilled all of their, their prophecies and is the hope of Israel, as he calls it. And so his, he is fully desiring for his people to, to turn, to come to that. And uh, so that's why he, he goes on. He, he bypasses the warnings. He hears them. But what it does is just, just build him up and, and make him more determined. Uh, what come what may i'm going and uh this is a way i think as as i have read these warnings um that i believe that what's happening is here is that the holy spirit that god has has seen what paul has done he's seen his ministry and this is a way of god um in a god is so personal with paul here and god is giving him these warnings to prepare him, prepare him that, that uh, things are coming. And, and so this is actually an act of grace and, and kindness of God to give this to him uh, on his way. It's not, God, I don't believe God is trying to deter him or, or to turn him in a different direction. 
Because as I said, we're going to see actually that God is affirming his direction later on as we, as we go. The next thing that happens that we'll look at is the arrest. And so in Acts 21 still, uh, we find that that he is uh, in Jerusalem. He meets with the leaders of the church and gives his report. They rejoice greatly as what has happened. But what they tell him is this. Look, we now have thousands of Jewish converts. And these converts, are, are, they're on fire. And they're zealous for, for God. They're zealous for the, this faith that they have. And they're also zealous in keeping the law. These people have changed. They, they really are good people. But they've heard some false reports about you. That you teach uh, people in, in the uh, outer reaches of um, the empire where you've been going. That you're teaching even Jewish Christians, that they don't need to observe the laws of Moses and they don't need to, to keep all that. And we know that you don't believe that way. But what we'd like you to do is uh, go to the temple and do some ceremonial observance. And uh, in doing that, you can demonstrate uh, by your actions that you're not anti-Moses. That you, you, you still have respect for the customs of the Jewish people. Well, Paul, Paul's good with that. Remember, he said to the Jews, I'm a, I am a Jew. And uh, he, was, he was respectful of those things. He wasn't someone who disregarded uh, his background and, and just threw it all away. He understood the context of it. And he fully accepted what the laws of, of God that he, God had been given through Moses, what they meant, where they fit, and who they were for. And so let's read uh, verses 23 to 26, and we'll see how this goes. They said, Therefore do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them, and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads, and all will know that there is nothing to the things which you have been, that they have been told about you but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. Then Paul took the men and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. So for the sake of the Jewish Christians, Paul went to the temple uh, for ceremonial observances. He uh, was willing to do that. However, he gets into this temple area and he is seen by some from out of town Jews from uh, probably the Ephesus area. They were from Asia. And he's accused of violating the temple sanctity. So let's look at verse 27. When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law in this place. And besides, has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. 
For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was provoked, and the people rushed together, and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. So he's accused of violating the temple's sanctity, uh, and he's falsely accused. He did not bring Trophimus into th- that area. He had respect for the laws of God and, and respect for the temple. But they, like, which is so common with humanity, jump to conclusions and uh and, and and then race to to deal with it in a very harsh and violent way. So Paul was arrested or rescued <laughs> by the Roman cohort. Uh, they hear of what's they hear the commotion, send soldiers in, and uh, they pull him out. Verse thirty one. It says while they were seeking to kill him. A report came to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. At once he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the command, and when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. And so uh, they, the commander, ends up uh, pulling Paul out and uh, taking him. Uh, into a place of security, questioning him. He's trying to figure out what's going on. And so the rest of the chapter and uh, and on into chapter 22 is dealing with this whole situation. We're not going to have time to go into all this. There is a lot here of of the next uh, couple of days. Uh, What eventually happens is there's a plot that's hatched to kill Paul. And it's overheard uh, by the nephew of Paul. He's the son of Paul's sister. And uh, it would be nice to know more information about him and, and, and that whole relationship. But we don't know that much about it. But suffice it to say, he's in the place where he can overhear it. So it could be, and very likely is, that he also was sent by his sister to Tarsus as Paul was when Paul was a young man to come and learn of the law was probably himself zealous for the law probably growing up as a Pharisee and uh, yet uh, when he hears about what they're about to do to Uncle Paul uh, he he says ah, this isn't right and, and so he goes he finds Paul tells him about the plot Paul sends him to the commander and he tells the commander about it, and the commander says, uh, "I got to, I got to get Paul out of here." So he ends, ends up sending him to Caesarea, and that's where uh, the trial officially uh, is is held. And so, over in chapter twenty-four, we have the trial. Paul defends his case before Felix, the the high priest, Ananias, and. He brings along a, a prosecuting attorney uh, by the name of Tertullus. They come and they, they present the, the prosecution side of it. And uh, we're under Roman law. 
we're operating according to Roman law, and so there has to be uh, a person that has to face his accusers. And so Paul uh, faces his accusers and uh, defends his case before Felix, gives an account of what happened. Well, Felix w- is not going to be able to find any fault there, so he doesn't uh, hand him over to the Jews. He continues to hear his story, but uh, it takes two years. All, all this process, he keeps them for two years. He is eventually replaced. Felix is replaced by a man named Porcius Festus, who again has to hear his case. It again has to be the uh, the high priest and, and his his uh, party come down, uh, make their case against Paul, and then Festus hears Paul's defense again. Then it's presented again uh, a few days later before King Agrippa. Uh, and Agrippa's sister Bernice. These are actually significant people. And that's why Luke actually records these people. Luke is writing as a historian, and he is um, writing about uh, people that in that part of the world, in that time, are significant players. And so Luke uh, brings this out, and, and uh, Paul makes his defense before Agrippa and Bernice. Now, Agrippa and Bernice, who is his sister, these are descendants of Herod the Great. They're, I think they're their grandchildren. Um, but uh, anyway, they are descendants, and they are um, influential people that are there. One of the, the commentaries I read, though, made this, uh, this note. He said that of all these people... That who are significant uh, rulers in the Roman Empire, they're hearing the testimony of this Jewish man that they don't know before he comes before them. They, they don't know anything about him. Uh, they've not heard of him. And yet, who is it that 2,000 years later, everyone knows? It's not these people. You have to go and dig deep to find out things about these people. We all know about Paul. We have known about Paul. God, um, God has chosen to use Paul to, to exalt his name, really, because of his message and because of his ministry. Uh, I, I thought that was kind of a cool point. Uh, but in all of that, two years have gone by. And why that's an important point is Paul is a busy man. And he's always got he's got schedules, he's got things he's doing. And that's got to be frustrating. Have you ever made plans and then the whole plan gets blown up because of something that was completely out of your control? And uh, you got to have a way of dealing with it. <coughs> Paul had a plan that he writes about when he's back in Corinth and he's writing to the Romans. If you read in Romans chapter 15, he talks about his plan, which is to someday come to Rome. Someday he's going to go there and he he wants to uh, do ministry with them for a while. And then he wants to go to Spain because he wants to go to the outer parts of the empire. 
And so he wants to go to Spain. And so that's his, his goal. He has this plan. So in his next missionary journey, after he goes to Jerusalem, he wants to come to Rome, spend time there, and then go to Spain. He wants to actually the Roman church to help him to get to Spain. Uh, that's uh, his plan. And now he's been wallowing in uh, a jail cell, basically, for two years. Waiting. For what? For nothing, it seems like. And uh, yet, God isn't wasting time. God is sovereign. And so as we're going through this, this, this whole thing, I want us to be thinking about God's sovereignty and, and man's responsibility as we started off with. This is... It playing out. This is how many times it does play out. Well, eventually, uh, Paul has to appeal to Caesar because the the idea is brought up by Festus that of him going back to Jerusalem to face trial, and Paul knows it's not safe to go back to Jerusalem to face trial, so he appeals to Caesar, and so Festus says, "Okay, then to Caesar you will go." Agrippa being more familiar with uh, Jewish customs and so on helps to write the letter that we need to go uh, with Paul to for the reasons why he's being uh, sent to Caesar. And so uh, he would uh, be sent. So the voyage picks up. They go get on the ship. They go up to... Sidon then go on up and at Myra which is right there at the um, right below Lycia or is part of Lycia the region there they they stop and they change ships and they get on it and what it is calls it an Alexandrian ship Alexandria if you see down here is in Egypt and Egypt is the breadbasket of Rome and so it's believed that this was a, a, a cargo ship uh, that was filled with grain that went to Rome. Uh, but that's, that, was, that was Egypt, very rich uh, on the northern part where the Nile flows up into the Mediterranean Sea. That land area is very rich for, uh, for crops, for agriculture. And so uh, the Alexandrian ships then would, would sail up over there but this was getting late in the year and uh it's not good sailing time so they have to adjust their routes so this ship was uh docked at myra where they picked it up and then they sailed around down uh underneath crete (coughs) because of the prevailing winds it says and so at this time of year it's they have to adjust their routes they can't just take a straight line they're actually, if you look at this map, you see there are no straight lines. Uh, there's obstacles all in the way. And so they make their way around Crete. And as you read the account, which is a great account, this is uh, one of the best accounts of a sea voyage that would, you would want to see. Uh, it reminded me, though, when I was a kid, there was a TV show called Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Anybody remember that show? Just the old people like me. Um, yeah, it was it was a submarine um, that went to the bottom of the sea. But this almost was that uh, they did have a shipwreck. And uh, so they get to the 
uh, Fair Havens, which is um, in, in the middle there of Crete on the south side. They stop there, and they're trying to decide what to do. Should we go on or not? Paul warns them that they should not go on. It's, it's getting probably into November by this time, and uh, the, the storms are coming, and, uh, and so they, it is customary for the ships by this time of year to, to harbor for the winter. But Fair Havens wasn't, for whatever reason, we're not told, was not the uh, optimal place, at least for these sailors. And there was a place just a little further, if you see there, uh, it's called Phoenix. Um, I think it had a different name back then. But anyway, that's where they wanted to go. It was a better wintering port, uh, at least from their, their, their uh, opinion. And so the, the shipmaster wanted to go there. Paul says, if we try to go even just that little f- bit further, it's not that many miles, um, we're going we're gonna to be in a disaster. And uh, so he gives them that warning. They say, yeah, we still want to try to do it. So they do it. They get maybe halfway, and a storm comes up. Uh, some call it a, northeast, a nor'easter. Uh, the word that's, that's used, let me see if I can find it. Yeah, in chapter 27, verse 14, it's called a urakilo. And basically what it was, is it was a wind came up over the mountain. There was a mountain there on the island. Came up over the mountain and comes rushing down. It's a north wind that came down. There's an east wind that's coming across this way. They collide and create a whirlwind effect out there. And so that what it would do is just grab the ship and just turn it around. And, and it would be completely blown out to sea. So instead of being along the coast, you can see they, they get blown clear out to sea. And then for the next almost two weeks, a, a little over a week and a half, they're under uh, conditions that's described here where they can't see the sun or they can't see the stars. They don't know where they are. They can't tell exactly uh, where they are uh, as, for, as normal sailors would be able to do. And so um, they are they do manage to get into a shelter of, of a small island enough to be able to to pull up their um, their boat that's attached to the ship that's filled with water and they have to pull it up and it takes all hands on deck, even the people that aren't sailors. Everybody has to do it as Luke writes about this. We all had to, he says. And uh, so they get, get that up. They bind cables underneath the ship to hold the planks together to be able to take the buffeting from the, from the waves. Um, but they're, again, they're out for a few more days. Two weeks, uh, they're out for 14 days in, in this condition of, of wandering around. Finally, though, uh, they get over to Malta. They're taking soundings and they, they're blown over there, and they they find that that the the shore is or the the bottom of the uh, the sea there is getting more shallow. So they know they're coming up to a land, uh, but it's not familiar to them. And the, the commentator I read said that it's probably because uh, they weren't familiar with coming to it from that side. 
there was a port on the other side of Malta that that was normally used. And this this bay that they were coming to was not one they were familiar with. But by this time, they've already jettisoned their cargo. All of that wheat, all of that, everything that was going to make them money, it's all gone. Uh, they've jettisoned other things, everything that they can they can get rid of that they don't absolutely need to survive. But even with all of that, uh, they've given up hope of survival. Then Paul gets a message. And, and he tell, gives the, the, the men on the ship the message. And he says, An angel of the Lord, of the God that I serve, has told me that we will all survive. Every one of us will survive. So take courage. And let's just continue, and we are going to make it. We will survive. The ship will be lost, but we will survive. Which is what ends up happening. And so they end up uh, getting uh, toward the shore, getting close to the shore. They get stuck in, in the, uh, the, the mud of the, of the bottom of the bay there, <coughs> just a little ways from the shore. And the sh- as the, the waves are beating the back of the boat, tearing it to pieces uh they people either swim to shore or they're able to take pieces of the the planks and float to shore but they all are saved and uh the interesting thing is that they made it to shore in god's sovereign will at a place called saint paul's bay isn't that amazing or at least that's what it's called now um actually it's it's pretty cool uh february 10th in Malta is a national holiday commemorating the shipwreck. And uh, so they, they still uh, recognize this historical event as, as something that they uh, observe. The people of Malta were very hospitable. Uh, there were miracles of healing that took place that God used through Paul. And uh, three months later, they were able to board another Alexandrian ship and make their way to, to Rome. So this was the voyage that, that gets them uh, uh, to their destination. And then there's ministry in Rome. And so Paul arrives in Rome, but he's still in chains, basically. He's still in custody. And so he gets into to Rome, and they take him into a place where he's under what we would call house arrest. And so his ministry now is a ministry of being visited. He can't go to the synagogue. They have to come to him. He can't go to the, to the people of the church. They have to come to him. Everyone that he is going to minister to now for the next two years, because that's how long it would take before he gets his court date, <coughs> is uh, going to be coming to him. A completely different style of ministry. Again, the sovereign hand of God, though, that time is not wasted. And so it does, um, he, he's able to do ministry. And we would, would read about, I'm going to try to rush through this a little bit because there's some other things I really want to make sure I get to. But to the Jew first. And, and so he sends a, a, a message to the synagogue, Jewish leaders come and visit him. And he explains to them why he's there and uh, they set up a date for them to come back. They come back. We read about that in verse 23 to 24. Uh, 
And what we see is pretty typical of what his experience was at other synagogues and places that he's gone to in the city. Some believe and some don't. And it creates a great argument between them. Um, and so uh, that is, is his experience in Rome. He still does ministry. He's still faithful to his calling. It just has to be altered somewhat. He has to be able to do it. He also ministers to the church of Rome there. The believers come to visit him. They meet his needs. He meets theirs. They have time of discipleship and teaching. And so he's able to do his ministry there in Rome, even though he's in chains, even though he is uh, forbidden to just walk freely in the city. He's able to still do ministry. He ministers to other churches as well uh, while here in Rome. He uses his time effectively. And so here's he writes what we call the prison epistles. And uh, does anybody know what those are off the top of your head? Prison epistles. Ephesians. Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. And then there's the later one at a later uh, time of prison, and that is 2 Timothy. And we're going to look at some of those writings um, in a bit. He also and, and he writes to Timothy. In, and so just to kind of finish up his, his life, uh, his biography, so to speak, um, he does have his appearance before Caesar who is Nero, and it, it is, Nero is one of those really weird characters of history. Um, in his early part of his reign, uh, Nero um, really has a pretty hands-off approach to Christianity. It's not something he's concerned with, and he's not uh, dealing with it. He has other affairs of state, plus he's under the tutelage of his mother, uh, who uh, is giving him a lot of direction, who he later uh, gets rid of. <laughs> but, but for the time being, uh, she has a great influence on him. But also uh, an important figure to him was Seneca, the Roman philosopher. And because of these two people, uh, his first part of his reign is actually fairly positive um, in comparison to the last part. Uh, the last half of his reign. And the change really doesn't seem to take place until AD 64. And that's where there's kind of a turning point um, in his his um, time as emperor. The trial that, that Paul faces is believed to be in AD 62 when he's actually released, it's believed. And it is believed that, that after his release, he, he states his case and, and, and his case is thrown out and he is freed. And um, it's believed that it's that time he actually did fulfill his plan of going to Spain. He spent time with the, the Roman church, went to Spain. I saw one map as I was looking for maps um, that actually had, they called it the fifth um, missionary journey of, of Paul and uh, it had him actually going all the way up to Great Britain clear around Spain up to Britain and, and then coming back um, don't know uh, there's, there's really no hard facts on that um, but we 
we do believe that it's in coming back to Rome in probably around AD 67, uh, somewhere in there. By then, there is intense persecution of Christians in Rome. It has gotten very ugly. And, and so the Rome was burned. The, the, the fire in Rome, I think, was in 65. And uh, Nero blamed it on the Christians. And from there on, uh, Christians, I mean, they, the, the abuse they took was horrible. Um, and Paul, coming back, he gets arrested. That's where it's believed he's put into the Mamertine prison. And the last part of his life is there. And the last writing that we have from him is Second Timothy, the second letter to Timothy. And so um, that is uh, that is Paul's ministry. But I, I'd like to to go over some of what he wrote while he was in prison. Some verses I think that really, um, I, I just, I think they have a lot of meaning and kind of help us bring together this idea of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, how we live underneath that. And so um, uh, let me read these to you. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 13, it says, Therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf. For they are your glory. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Chapter 6, 19 to 20. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Philippians 1, 12 to 14. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Chapter 1, verse 19 to 21. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Chapter 3, verse 8. More than that, I count all things to be lost in viewing of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Chapter three, verses 13 to 14. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Chapter 3, 20 to 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which, we, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Chapter 4, verses 12 to 13. I know how to get along with humble means, I also know how to live in prosperity. 
In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Chapter 4, verse 22. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Chapter 4, verses 3 to 4. Praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Philemon, uh, verses 10 and 11. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. Second Timothy one twelve. For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. One sixteen. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Chapter 2, verse 9, For which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. Chapter 4, 6 to 8, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Chapter 4, verse 11. Only Luke is with me. This is one of my favorites. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. And then chapter 4, verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom to whom be the glory forever and ever amen that was Paul's spirit as he's in prison still doing ministry what do we take from this I see in Paul something magnificent that um something that we can pattern our life after. Paul had a plan to visit Rome, as I talked about earlier, on the way to Spain. God had a different plan for Paul to visit Rome. And we see that Paul had the humility to adjust to God's plan. One of the hardest things for us to do is to give up our dream or our plan when God changes it. But God is saying, do you trust me? Do you trust me? And God's plan is always the better plan. And we need to submit to that. 
In Ephesians, one of the prison epistles, Ephesians 5.18, Paul writes to us that we're to be filled with the Spirit. Then he gives three markers or indicators of what that is, being filled with the Spirit. Singing to yourselves in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making praise to the Lord. Giving thanks always for all things is the second one, and that's the one I want to focus on for this. What does it mean to give thanks always for all things? Paul's in prison for doing good, for doing the right thing, for being obedient to God. Giving thanks always for all things, I believe, is resting in the sovereign hand of God and His working in my life. That's what it means to give thanks always for all things. It's trusting his sovereignty and in continuing to live with, live underneath it. He had a different plan. He's able to submit to God's plan and be productive or faithful at every stage. He continued to be productive, continued to be faithful at every stage along the way. Uh, instead of getting angry and bitter or or are yelling at his surroundings, yelling at God. He, he continues to be uh, productive and faithful. And this is a, a great model for us. Uh, this is how I want to be. I need to be a lot better at this, at trusting in God's sovereign hand. Um, this is what Paul modeled for us. And this is really how the responsibility of man lives underneath the sovereignty of God. That's the relationship. Our responsibility is our faithfulness to the God who, who, uh, who saved us, who redeemed us, and who is using us to do his will, to perform his tasks. Can we trust him? I think we can. And uh, Paul did. Paul trusted him all along the way and stayed productive all the way to the end. He fought the good fight. He finished his course. He kept the faith. May we be the same way. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, so much for the encouragement that we get uh, from your word, that the teaching that your, the Holy Spirit would give to us and to open up our hearts to. And may we be people that um, are he not only hearers, but doers. And Lord, help us to be able to have this same spirit that we would be able to trust you and trust your sovereign hand as it works in our lives, that whatever our circumstances are, whether they be frustrating and, and, or uh, uh, severely troublesome, Lord, may we trust you and trust in what you're doing and be faithful to the, to the very end of it. Lord, use this example to be a, a real blessing to us. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all.